This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. Hello, I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Central Station, where I talk with a diverse range of people committed to making a positive impact on education. You can subscribe to these interviews wherever you get your podcasts, and to keep in touch, you can join us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Peter Barnes is an ex-banker turned learning innovator based in Sydney. About 20 years ago, he decided to leave the banking world and explore the emerging field of educational neuroscience. It saw him navigate turbulent times when it came to delivering educational neuroscience software, but times have changed. The computers and science are both better and making significant differences to the lives of students with learning difficulties. It's a good example of how the struggle with technology sometimes really is worth it. I caught up with Peter in his home office over a cup of tea at the kitchen table. So talking about educational technology over the last 20 years, I, I, that's something I don't immediately associate with someone who's come from banking. <laughs> Walk me through it. Yeah, okay. I've been all sorts of people. I've been an accountant. I've been a, um, a journalist. Um, I've worked in human resources. I spent quite a stint uh, in banking. Uh, running a bank here for in Australia for an international bank. And um, around, just before the turn of the century, I decided to leave all that alone. And um, I went and helped my wife, who'd, um, who's a speech pathologist here in Sydney. And she had obtained uh, the license to use some educational learning software for her remedial um, clients, kids who are having trouble learning to read, having trouble speaking, having trouble learning, having trouble with their memory. And that was, uh, so she needed someone to help her with all that stuff. And so I had to kind of learn the technology, which back then that was like at the turn of the century. And we're now almost at the end of the second decade. So imagine 20 years ago, what technology was like. So this, this was something that was enough to spark your interest out of the finance world and into maybe a different, different way that the mind actually works. I got really interested in it. Is that because the banking world was not that interesting? <laughs> it was pretty interesting, but I'd sort of exhausted, exhausted enough there. To, you know, I needed something different to keep my brain working. And what I discovered was I got connected with a whole bunch of extremely clever neuroscientists and educators and psychologists and software developers. Right, and that was through the connections with your wife because she, right. she had come across this. She had come across this, yes. And it was in its very early stages. And she figured that uh, it would add a great deal of help to the clients she was working with and, and struggling to get them to uh, improve their learning and their reading and so forth. That's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because we think back now to the year 2000, which we can now call the turn of the century, and say, back then. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, it was really new back then. Yes, you know? yes. And, and how, how much things have changed in that time? I mean, I'm just thinking about, thinking about back then, the technology, the development of, um, you know, there were no, no iPhones, there's no iPads. Um, back then, we were delivering um, this learning technology on CDs. 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 And I remember I, ha I had to learn all this stuff because I'd been in banking and, you know, you don't deal with technology in banking. <laughs> <laughs> back then, anyway. And uh, so I'd have to get three or four or five or six, depending on what we were 
d trying to deliver to the client, to the student, CDs and then load them onto these computers and fight the computer and play with the permissions and all sorts of stuff. Oh, permissions, which, access denied, all, all that sort of all stuff. All of that stuff, which now you don't even think about because all this stuff comes down over the yeah. streaming from the cloud. Yeah, on yeah. demand. Yeah, I remember yeah. I remember buying my first CD-ROM thinking, oh, this is this must be a really good one. It, it does eight times oversampling, you know, and you just think, oh, man, I don't even think about that technology anymore. Who's got, who's got the time? Who wants to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I remember back then... Um, doing support for this learning technology where we'd have teachers in schools because we it initially do you want me to tell you the story about this how this happened yeah well i mean that's that's where this ended up going so mm. well, just before you do that i was just going to ask you just at this turning point then when you started to think about schools and you're fiddling with cds and t thinking about support and fighting with computers did you did you just briefly look back and go no, I think the bank was better. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually didn't, because this gave me a whole new um, playground, actually. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. It was hard. It was fun. Uh, and um, yeah, so I was enjoying myself. So schools would have been dealing with the same struggles as well, because computers to schools was also a very new thing back then as well. Oh, my God, yes. Yes, yes. Some schools had IT sort of people, but... Uh, if, <laughs> But usually it was a teacher who had shown some interest and so the principal said, well, you're it, right? Uh, or it was uh, later on, um, the, there was this travelling service that went around that sometimes every couple of weeks the IT person would drop into the school and fix up whatever needed to be fixed up. But it was really Wild West back then. Yeah, sure. I can imagine. You know, early early. 2000s. I can imagine that some of the schools might have said, listen, you've got this cool new educational technology innovation. We've got enough problems of our own right now. Do you mind? <laughs> Did you ever get that response? Uh, we got that quite a lot. Yeah. And in fact, we still get that. Oh, but, really? but it's more that the problems are, we've got so much to do. We don't have any time. Mm -hmm. Oh, so much technology, but no time. So 20 years later, we still don't have any more time. No, we've got less time. Oh, well, I think, that's, that's I think technology has been somewhat soaking it up. So the, the schools must have been quite interested, though, to hear that this was a, a neuroscience approach. Yes. Well, the schools have all the same problems of kids with learning difficulties that uh, were appearing in my wife's speech pathology clinic, right? But there's just many, 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 many more of them. You know, if, if, if the statistics are something like this, 10% of the, the, the student population has some sort of struggle with learning, however it's caused or reading, however it's caused. And it can be caused by all sorts of things, which we can talk about later, perhaps. But um, there's lots of them. So if 10% of the student population in, just take Australia, for example, that's a lot of people. Yeah, sure. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, the, the trajectory of neuroscience development or neuroscience research, I should say, over the last 30 or 40 years kind of matches up time-wise. I don't want to use the word correlates, but it, it's kind of along the same timeline as how technology evolved. Did the, did the two complement each other as that went as that went forward? So did neuroscience benefit as well from from the improvements in technology, but perhaps from a different angle? Absolutely. From a neuroscience research point of view, brain imaging technology and all of that helped scientists understand more about what's going on in the brain. So that was the game changer, wasn't it? When we could look at when we could actually look at a living brain doing its thing 
using this technology. So on the one hand, you've got schools who are battling with the technology, and then you've got some, some scientists who are thinking, oh my goodness, this is a game changer for us. So you've got these two parallel things. How, how did you respond when you found that you could suddenly capture images from the living brain? Well, it was amazing. I mean, I wasn't capturing them because that's technology that is way out there, expensive. Um, but you were enjoying the experience. Of, you were sharing the experience <laughs> I was being, from, from afar. <laughs> I was being shown this stuff by these amazing research scientists, yes, who'd worked up at Stanford University and Harvard and all these places. And um, So that was one bit of technology that evolved and made a big change. The other thing was that the ability of these scientists to use what they'd learnt about how the brain works how the brain thinks and operates and what's what what's causing learning glitches in brains how they use that knowledge to build software to help remediate those problems and back as i said in the early days they put that software on a whole bunch of cds then as technologies evolved we've now got that software being delivered over the internet live into a student's brain, into a student's experience. So that's been a massive game changer. And that's enabled many, many more students to access this thing at lower cost than originally. And just takes a lot of the hassle out, I suppose, doesn't oh, it? It takes a massive amount of hassle out of it. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, we were talking before about the fact that people don't have a lot of time, despite the fact that we think that technology perhaps should give people more time. Uh, but this, in fact, has actually addressed that problem because you can just bypass all of those problems that you were talking about before, CDs, etc. I mean, computers, I don't think, even come with CD drives. No, they don't. Well, my laptop hasn't had a CD drive <clears throat> no, for years. No, So the, the complementary path then of technology and neuroscience research was, was perhaps unbeknownst to schools? Was this, a, was this a revelation to them when you started talking to them? Absolutely. I mean, I remember in the early days, I'd go and visit schools. When still schools started to get a little bit interested in this, we had some sort of early adopters or, or people early. Most of the population, education population didn't know about this and weren't particularly interested. But there were early adopters who wanted to know about it. And I'd go and talk to them and I would give them Neuroscience 101. Okay, so I was an ex-banker who'd learnt enough about this stuff from these scientists so that I could translate that into simple language and talk to, to educators, teachers, about how the brains are operating for these kids that they're seeing in their classrooms that are not performing the way they're hoping they would be. Did they take that well from an ex-banker? I didn't tell them and they didn't ask. No, no one ever said, why should I listen to you? Um, but I managed to keep their attention for an hour or more or as long as I could get them, detention after school. Usually they're running home to do all the, thing, all the things they need to do. Well, perhaps it was because it was really just that interesting. I think it was just that interesting. I mean, I found it interesting. Um, even two decades later, I still find the whole thing so interesting. And what also amazes me is how come it hasn't yet taken on like fire across the world. I mean, in Australia and New Zealand, it's been fairly slow relative to the rest of the world. In China, for example, uh, these neuroscience technologies and these neuroscience programs developed by these people are being used massively to teach the English language because they're training the brains of the Chinese kids to recognise the sounds of English, which are quite different from the, mm, the, the Chinese Yeah, very sounds. different. And that's a fundamental piece of being able to acquire... Um, English language skills. So and I guess, I guess the old rule applies. Start early, right? 
Absolutely, the earlier the better. Yeah. Is, is there a, 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 an optimum range? Oh, look, I don't know. The earlier, the better. So I was going to ask, do you think that now that it is coming out, I mean, you, well, it's, it's more well known, those schools that have listened and are aware of the findings, are they, are they using the findings effectively? Or is this just another one of those things that's come up in a seminar, people have talked about it, they got excited about it for a while, and, well, it's back to business as usual? School, we've got so much data. In the last 20 years, there's been over 3 million students worldwide that have um, experienced this technology. And the data says that if they use it the way it's prescribed, i.e. they use it a certain number of times a week, a number of minutes, and they do the exercises in that prescribed progression. It's like taking medicine. If the doctor says, here, you take this pill and you take one in the morning and two at night, if you just decide you're only going to do the morning one, well, you can't expect to get better Mm. necessarily. And it's the same thing with this. The evidence shows that if the, the... Schools get their students to use this um, neuroscience technology, this neuroscience software, in the way that the scientists have determined uh, is best for achieving results, then they achieve extraordinary results. Things like double the um, expected reading gain over a period. So kids who've used this for two terms um, are getting, instead of two terms reading growth, they're getting... A year's reading growth. Now, this fascinates me because this asks a, potentially what you might think of as an ethical question, and we might not have time to delve into the ethics of this, but does that mean that potentially for the last, I don't know, 50 to 100 years of modern education that we've been uh, artificially, well, I guess not artificially and not perhaps not intentionally, but retarding the potential reading gain of all children just in the way that we've been doing it? And and then the second, the second part of that question is, because we can now use this technology and this knowledge to do it faster, does that mean that we should be doing it? Ha, huh. right. Well, first of all, I don't think that um, we can say that we've been delinquent in teaching kids for the last century because this knowledge has only sort of emerged in the late um, 80, uh, 1990s, pretty much. So until then, I think we're doing the best we can do. Yeah, I mean, I know that was a, that's a fairly contentious question, but it, yeah. but I'm just trying to look at it from the wide ends of the spectrum because I guess what happens in the future is now going to be influenced by what we know now and what, and what we will continue to know. So It's a very interesting question because with our current um, litigious society and parents really giving schools a hard time about delivering what they think they should be delivering to their kids and getting the results for their kids, it wouldn't be hard to imagine that some parent one day will go, look, there's this knowledge, there's this technology, it's been proven. Why aren't you doing that in your school for my kid? I'm taking you to court. My, my instant reaction is that that's, that's a horrible thing to think about, but, it, but it's plausible, isn't it? It is plausible. I think it's a horrible thing to think about too, but it, uh, it could happen. So this sort of stuff is expensive, right? Well, it depends. Expense uh, depends on value. You know, expense is relative to value. Expensive compared to what? Boy, we could talk about this for another hour as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but re- right. relative to uh, a textbook or relative to... Well, here's a good example. What if you sent your child to remedial reading lessons with a specialist one-on-one for 10 weeks? 
is it are we now starting to see some sort of parity between the costs? Let me give you an example. There's um, a study that was done probably ten years ago now that this technology produces results in twelve weeks that are equivalent to one-on-one speech pathology over fifty sessions. That's like fifty weeks of speech pathology. One-on-one is as good as using this technology for 12 weeks. Wow, that's incredible. And that technology for 12 weeks can be delivered to one student, a classroom of students, a whole year of students, a whole school of students. So if you do the maths on that, yeah. you can see that it's not expensive. No. Mm-hmm. Well, at least not according to our traditional views of expense with respect to education and learning and teaching and, and uh, I guess something as simple as school fees. Now, do the speech pathologists see this as a threat? Some have. Some have done so, yes. But my wife says that really this is not a threat at all. What this does, it, 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 when she has to do one-on-one therapy with students, she finds, and her, some of her colleagues who've used this, find that it actually improves her ability to produce good outcomes for the... It prepares their brain better to assimilate the... Uh, therapy that she's delivering. Oh, so they're complementary? It's complementary, yes. Okay, because I guess some of the critics might say, well, what about the human contact? You know, uh, my child's only in front of a screen. They've got an iPhone and an iPad and the the school wants them to use a computer all day long. And now you're telling me that therapy is computer uh, delivered. Uh, So there is a complementary factor though. Absolutely. Actually, I wanted to ask you that as well, because with... Look, I, I want to say screen addiction, but I, that's not the right. Com- this is not the right conversation to have that uh, to talk about what could potentially be called screen addiction. Let's just say students see a lot of screen time these days. Are we starting to see as well that the introduction or increased use of screens, and then perhaps also increased use of therapy with screens, is starting to change some of the results? or alter some, some brain chemistry there somehow? It's probably altering brain chemistry because everything we do alters brain chemistry. And if you do it repeatedly, as these exercises do, that will alter brain chemistry. But you've got to be careful in making global statements about this because therapy delivered by technology, it depends what is the therapy. And there's a huge range of stuff. You can go and buy a, a, you know, a, a little program from the local corner store for $10 uh, that... Is a totally different um, therapy, if you like, to yeah, something sure. that's delivered by developed by a whole bunch of neuroscientists based on twenty years of research. Sure, that's a very interesting thing to talk about because if you're talking about therapy with air quotes around it, uh, you could also say that social media is a therapy in that it makes me feel good. Yeah, absolutely. And so if yeah, this, yeah. if looking at this screen makes me feel good, well, then that's a therapy, and then that's just as valid as this other program, which helps me to read better. So, again, look, I know this is a very... It's a big topic. It's a big topic. It's very contentious. But I, I guess it's, some, it's something just to flag, because anyone thinking about educational technology will start to think, oh, computers. Again, again, we're talking about computers. Can't we just do something else without computers? I'm sure we can do things without computers. There's all sorts of things that teachers do without computers, and they should absolutely keep doing that. Um, but if you're going to use technology, wouldn't it be better to use technology that's been proven to produce uh, beneficial changes for students, beneficial changes in their learning capacity, and take some of that computer use time 
and use it for the best possible outcome for students rather than letting them just cruise around and play you know, games or whatever it is with sure. no educational um, content or output. I suppose you often get the response that says, are you telling me it's proven by people in white lab coats hiding in laboratories who write complicated academic papers with language that I don't understand and you've read all those and decoded them and you're telling me, but I'd still like you to prove it to me. <laughs> well, there's all sorts, what is evidence, right? This is a whole another whole question uh, what is evidence? we could have a chat about. Right? <laughs> How much time have you got? <laughs> but very, very quickly, because we, we don't have a, a huge amount of time here. Very quickly, evidence can range from the stuff you just described. It's the laboratory, white lab coat, all that kind of stuff with all sorts of data and academic language, which most of us don't understand, right down to the evidence of um, kids reporting that they can now learn better, read better, remember better, hear what, understand what the teacher's saying. And, uh, and, and in between the, those two ends of the spectrum, we've got things like um, field studies where schools will do, uh, like for example in Australia, NAPLAN, and we've got data from some schools who've done NAPLAN uh, before students use this learning right, technology. Right, so it's coming out in some of our standardised testing. Yes, absolutely. So there's all sorts of research out there, so all sorts of evidence. Sorry, so you're suggesting that NAPLAN was actually useful for that part? Well, <laughs> <laughs> we probably shouldn't get into a NAPLAN debate. <laughs> I think we've raised about four topics that are probably at least maybe one or two hours for each topic. But uh, no, I only say that because, uh, look... Again, NAPLAN is another topic, but it does get a bad rap. But if, if there are positive things coming out in that, well, then, then that's worth looking at. Sure. I mean, I think NAPLAN deserves some of the bad rap it gets, but it also does have some value. So, you know, let's talk about that another time. Sure. Yeah. Well, just before we go, and I know that time's getting away, but uh, where, do you, where, where do you see this going? Where do I see which going? The introduction of neuroscience-based education models for example, like a, a scientific model of education with the uh, support of educational technology that's, that's coming out of neuroscience? I think it's inevitable. Uh, it's inevitable that it will become more widespread than it is today. It's inevitable for a number of reasons. One is that the technology and the neuroscience and the understanding and the, the ability to build more powerful applications is improving all the time. For example, I'll give you one example of that before we continue on that train of thought, is that at the beginning of this century, almost 20 years ago, the standard protocol, the standard time to get a result for a student who was using this technology was 90 minutes a day of exercises for five days a week. Now it's got that down through efficiencies, better um, data analysis of all these millions of students using this down to 30 minutes a day. Okay, right? so, so, it's, so it's 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 one it's it's one third now of the time. So you can see the power of what's been happening. So the results are feeding back into the development of the technology At all the time. Yes, and yes. so we're, in 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 that sense, we're actually discovering new things about the brain by doing that as well. We are absolutely. So to answer your question, where's this going? I think it's inevitable that it will continue to improve, that educators will see the value of this and they'll see the value for their students. The curriculum the teachers are delivering to them will be learnt better because um, we're improving the students' brains. This is a new paradigm, right? For, for, we've, we've never 
thought about, or until recently thought about, uh, how to get better education results other than let's get better teachers, let's mm. beat the teachers up, let's, you know... Increase funding. Increase funding. Build more halls. Build more halls, all of that stuff. Let's change the curriculum. So the curriculum, yeah, let's get a better curriculum, that'll fix it all. What, what's been forgotten or not recognised until this neuroscience revolution came along was that if you can improve the brains of the students, yeah. the learning capacity of the students, that's a surefire way of getting better educational outcomes. Yeah, sure. So I think it's inevitable that this is going to expand. The use of this is going to expand. Well, Peter, I think we've probably mentioned at least five potential PhD topics. <laughs> Something for you, to do, for you to do in your spare time, Colin. <laughs> well, no, we'll throw it out to the listeners. If you've got a good idea for a PhD topic that Peter should uh, pursue, <laughs> Peter, it sounds like you've got uh, enough things on your, uh, on your plate at the moment, but it's been great to speak with you and uh, we look forward to uh, talking to you again about some of these developments. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Terrific. You've been listening to Central Station. If you'd like to know more about how educational neuroscience can help your child, you can send Peter an email, and that's peter at learnfastgroup.com.au. Or you can visit the website, learnfasthq.com. And for more information about all of our guests and interview transcripts, head on over to central.com.au slash podcast. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.